Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Today, we're going to continue our look at conservatism and the Republican Party. And we'll talk with Andy Smerich, a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, about his take on where American conservatism stands. What are the things conservatives actually want to accomplish through government? How well does the GOP represent those things? And will the party be able to better connect with voters going forward? That's next on Detroit Today. But first, the news from NPR. WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and as always, it's really great that you've decided to join us. The Republican Party is in a pretty odd space these days, and we were reminded of that, I think, about a month ago when we had the 2020 to midterm elections. Going into those elections, of course, uh, the expectations were very high for Republicans. Uh, the Democrats control the White House and for now control both houses of Congress. That should have meant that uh, Republicans would do very well, historically at least, uh, taking back some of that power, peeling away some of what Democrats have in Washington. But it didn't turn out that way. Yes, Republicans will control the House of Representatives when we come back to the world in 2023 after the holidays, but they didn't take the U.S. Senate. And in states like Michigan, they lost lots of things that they hadn't lost in a really long time. And this moment for conservatives and Republicans is bigger even than just elections. There's kind of an intellectual crisis, I think, going on on the right. What is conservatives? What is the Republican Party? What does it stand for? And what do conservatives want from their elected representatives? What are the things that they would say are policy goals or aspirations? We've been talking a lot about that here on the show since the elections, taking a look at conservatives and Republicans, where they are and where they want to be. We've talked about conservative principles and we've spoken with state Republican representatives about what they want for the future of the party. And today we want to focus intently on policy. Now, policy is something that is practical. We can measure how it plays out in our lives, how it affects our families, how it changes our schools. Policy priorities also help us measure where the two parties lie. But recently, it's been hard to understand what kinds of policies conservatives really want. As recently as 2020, the Republican Party didn't even really have a policy platform. So what is it? 
that conservatives are thinking about these days. How are they reckoning among themselves over the things that are happening, the disconnect from voters that we see? How are they reckoning with the internal struggle between people who are loyal to former President Donald Trump and people who would say that they're more classical kinds of conservatives? That's where we want to begin the conversation today. And we want to have two conversations uh, with folks from the Manhattan Institute, which is a center-right think tank, to talk about this. First, we want to welcome Andy Smerick, a senior fellow at the think tank. His work focuses on education, civil society, and the principles of American conservatism. And he's operated in conservative circles for quite some time. Andy Smerick, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be with you and talk about the subject. So you worked in the George W. Bush administration as a domestic policy aide. Uh, you have uh, been someone who considers yourself a conservative, I imagine, for quite some time. Let's start with what makes you a conservative? What drew you to conservative ideals and uh, sort of how you articulate what those ideals look like in a policy context uh, right now? Well, great question, um, and I should begin by saying that these are kind. These are the sorts of debates that have existed inside of conservatism in America since the founding. There's a great book on the founding conservatives. There are there were debates between the Taft wing and Eisenhower wing in the mid 20th century uh, during the Progressive era. There were debates, so there are always disagreements inside of American conservatism about what are the things that should be prioritized, both principles and policies. But in general, to understand understand American conservatism now, you kind of have to understand conservatism in general, which um, exists everywhere. Every society, every nation, community, states, regions have a version of conservatism. And all that means is what are the things that enable our people in this place to succeed over a long period of time? Um, and those are the things that we ought to preserve or conserve. And so that means that conservatism in Hungary will be different than conservatism in Australia and will be different than conservatism in 16th century Spain and so forth. So the question is, what are the things, the institutions, the practices, the habits that have made America successful and have enabled us to succeed? I mean, remember, we were a nation conceived in liberty, so we take individual rights seriously. We're a nation that believes in democracy and in the republic tradition of like civic virtue and participation. We're a nation that's highly diverse. Um, we're continental. So how do we um, make all of that work? How do we do e pluribus unum? Like how do we get to one out of so many? And so America has developed all of these practices, habits, beliefs, systems, ranging from federalism, localism, uh, a robust civil society, a reliance on tradition and originalism and capitalism. Uh, that enable us to distribute power, allow people to have control over their own lives as opposed to centralizing it all. And it's this set of principles that guide me and have for a long time guided conservatism. And if we begin with those, then we can start to think about how policy, whether it's a local, state, federal level, um, ought to be implemented. Yeah. So uh, give me your your take, I guess, on where the party is right now, that history that you were talking about, I think, is is really important and, and a, a great reminder 
uh, that, you know, a lot of times I think we think we're living in uh, un- not just unusual but unique times. And, uh, of course, lots of things that we're experiencing have happened before. At the same time, I think it's fair to say uh, that the crisis within conservatism and within the Republican Party right now is perhaps more acute than than most of us have seen, I think, in, in our lifetimes. And the challenge that uh, former President Trump presents to, to the idea of conservatism uh, is, is uh, I think, a greater threat, I, I suppose, to, to, to the party and its future than anything that I can remember. So, so give me my, your take on, uh, on all of that and, and where conservatism kind of stands uh, right now, given this internal struggle that's going on in the party. Well, you are absolutely right that what is happening now is more acute, but it also ought to be viewed as uh, like on a spectrum, that this is maybe the far end of the spectrum, but there are often, like every generation, these fights, both in the Republican and Democratic parties, about what are our principles, what do we actually believe, and often they're fostered or catalyzed by um, bouts of populism. We saw this in the Democratic Party during the Andrew Jackson era in the 1830s, when William Jennings Bryant took over the Democratic Party and won the nomination three times, but lost the election three times at the turn of the 20th century, when there were these debates between Goldwater fans on the Republican side or more establishment people. The Democratic Party lost elections in 1980 and 84 and 88, and they had to do a bunch of thinking about, all right, how do we try to win in 1992? And there was this Democratic Leadership Council, Progressive Policy Institute, um, movement of more centrist that led to Bill Clinton. Uh, So all this is to say that we have these kinds of movements constantly, and they cause us to go back to first principles. And what we're going through in the Republican Party right now, really, um, you can think about it in 2010 when the Tea Party movement really began, and then in 2014 when Eric Cantor, the Republican majority leader in the House, lost in a primary, and then with Donald Trump getting elected in 2016, uh, a lot of this, just like in these pre, uh, previous eras of like populism's rise, a sense among a lot of voters that the people in charge aren't really looking out for everybody else. And so you have these schisms within the party, but also sort of an uprising. And this is largely what we've seen, where there are these questions about, does the media have too much power? Do big corporations have too much power? Does Washington, D.C. have too much power? And so I think those are good questions, and we can go back to these principles to answer them. But you're like, I don't want to undersell the point that you're making, which is, although there's some continuities in Republican thinking about education and tax policy, there have been new ideas and new fights about some things that I thought were settled, like originalism and textualism as legal principles. Now there are people talking about this common good constitutionalism. There had been a view that like we should largely at the federal level not get too involved in big economic matters, but now there's some on the right who are arguing for industrial policy. Mm-hmm. Um, there are people who sort of think that because of nationalism, we need to have more and more federal authority, especially to deal with immigration, but some other matters. But so all of these things are important. Um, there are debates that are happening. I kind of think that the Trump wave this it is probably crested and is going down, and I'm hoping we can get back to some of these basic uh, debates, beliefs about distributing power and liberty and community voluntary associations. But there is no doubt, especially in Washington, D.C., um, we've seen people, I think, lose track 
of these principles. But never forget that, uh, as I'd like to tell people, looking at Washington, D.C. Um, and drawing conclusions about the rest of America um, is sometimes <laughs> like draw, drawing conclusions about athletics by looking at professional wrestling. Um, the, be aware that there's theater going on and some people just like the fight, not like the real stuff. So at the state and local level, often Republicans are doing quite well and they're still uh, uh, bought into these principles. And hopefully at the national level, we can get back to these things that have defined conservatism. Yeah. Uh, I'm talking with uh, Andy Samaric. He's a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, where his work focuses on education, civil society, and the principles of American conservatism. We're talking about conservatism and the Republican Party uh, as part of a series of conversations we're having about the state of conservatism, the state of uh, the GOP uh, in the wake of the 2022 midterm elections, which uh, had some surprising and uh, disappointing pointing results for uh, conservatives and Republicans. Uh, we're talking about uh, what it means to be a conservative, what it means to be a Republican right now, what kind of policy goals uh, conservatives and Republicans have, uh, and how they might better connect with voters than they seem to uh, just uh, a month ago. As always, we want to hear from you during the conversation as well. Give us a call and let us know what your understanding is of what conservatism is right now. Uh, we especially want to hear from you if you are uh, someone who considers yourself a conservative or a part of the Republican Party. What kind of things do you want to see implemented in the way of education and economic development, uh, public safety? Uh, what are the spaces where you think Republicans uh, can get things done? And what are those things that you'd like to see them uh, getting done. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can work you into the conversation that way. In a little bit, uh, we're going to talk with another Manhattan Institute researcher, Rafael Mangual, who writes a lot about public safety from uh, a conservative perspective. We're going to talk about uh, we're going to talk about that with him and, of course, with you as well. Uh, but right now, let's let's get the phones and uh, social going around this idea of conservatism and uh, its future. Again, 313-577-1019 is, uh, is the number. Um, so uh, I, I want to have you talk just a little about uh, policy goals that you think uh, make sense for uh, the, the GOP and, and for conservatives right now um, and the things that you think there's an opportunity, I guess, to maybe unify uh, conservatives uh, around uh, as a way of clarifying some of these things, some of these tensions that you were talking about. Uh, great. Well, thank you. I think my preference is to go back to these basic principles about we as conservatives believe in a a number of explicit named individual liberties, things that are, for example, in the Bill of Rights, we need to protect those. We also believe in democracy, uh, the Republican tradition of uh, elected representatives. We believe in distributing power at the state level and local level because Poughkeepsie is different than Phoenix and Detroit is different than Dallas. And if we want people to feel agency and efficacy control over their lives, that means not nationalizing everything, allowing communities to be different 
from one another. So step one, in my view, is recognizing that we want people to be in charge of their lives. And that means getting as much power out of Washington, D.C. as we can and getting more power in the hands of people through their state legislatures, through their county councils, city councils, mayors, so they can make these decisions that really influence their lives. And while they're doing that, we should think about how do we make sure that our schools are as great as possible, that um, families have control over that, whether through school choice or small school districts, um, making sure that people think that their kids have pathways to a great future, whether that means four-year college or that means a career and technical education program. Uh, a lot of conservatives now are increasingly concerned about what we're calling the health of the American family. Um, we're at now all-time low rates of marriage and in uh, fertility, the number of kids uh, families are having. And a lot of the thinking is that it's just harder and harder today because of house prices, um, because of tax policy for, fam for individuals to start families and then to have thriving families. And this relates to public safety, to volunteerism, um, civil society voluntary uh, associations. Um, and then like the, probably the last piece of this is thinking about how do we get more people to participate in public life? And that can be like running for office, but it also means uh, volunteering, joining of uh, some association, taking part in the fabric of America, not just always allowing technocrats or bureaucrats far away in Washington or elsewhere control our lives, but giving people power so they can decide what's best for their families, for their communities, for their neighbors. And so we can all fully understand and live out what it means to be a citizen, not just to be part part of a, a, a single nation. So one of the things that I think really uh, is challenging a lot of the things that you're talking about right now uh, is, is the relationship between conservatives or Republicans uh, and issues like race and sexual uh, uh, identity um, and and the the history, of course, of those issues is confounding in some ways with conservatism, I think, and and with the the Republican Party. But but in the modern context, so much of what I think we hear and see from not just conservative or Republican candidates for office, but from people who support that party is this um, this sense of resentment, I suppose, uh, about the liberties uh, that that uh, you know people um, uh, that people want for themselves with regard to race uh, and and gender to, to equality that that people are demanding, and it seems fundamentally at odds with a lot of the things that you were just talking about. Uh, I, I want to have you address those problems that I think uh, the, the, the Republican Party in particular uh, is facing right now. Well, thank you for that. And um, it is an important issue to bring up and to uh, address directly. So my view when I talk about the individual liberties, the rights of all citizens, like equality is at the very top of this. And I, it is the great stain of American history that um, the nation has been um, and especially had been, um, things are better now, but still uh, not perfect, 
had been so unfair to so many of our fellow citizens. And so thank goodness we have a 14th Amendment, um, 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, the Civil War Amendments, that tried to bring greater um, racial equality to this nation after too many lives, too many decades, too much suffering. Um, we also have uh, an amendment to the Constitution that guaranteed women the right to vote that hadn't been there before. So um, nothing in my view of conservatism forgives um, past sins related to uh, inequality, unfairness, whether based on race or like income, there have been like awful like class wars and religious um, battles between people of um, minority faiths. So uh, while we're talking about free speech, while we're talking about um, search and seizure, while we're talking about um, the Eighth Amendment and protections about um, uh, the types of punishments. We should also make sure that we're talking about due process rights and equal protection rights in the 14th Amendment and making sure all of our fellow citizens are treated fairly. And so there is no room, um, in my view, and I hope everyone else's view of conservatism, for unfairness, whether we're talking about anti-Semitism, racism, um, uh, anything that can treat our fellow citizens unequally. And the, the the continued struggle over that is the thing that that um, that I keep coming back to. I mean, so many so much of what you hear from Republicans and see from Republicans policy wise does seem to to try to blunt uh, the, the the struggle for equality. Um, the argument, for instance, uh, over affirmative action or the argument over uh, critical race theory, which is something that that I feel like conservatives kind of ginned up themselves as a way to attack the idea of, um, you know, of lingering inequality and the need to, uh, to address it. I mean, um, are those things that, that, that are at the heart of the party's disconnect with, you know, minority voters, but, but also um, increasingly with, with, with other voters who, who I think, um, uh, who I think find it, again, at odds with the idea of American principles. Great. Okay, so um, I'm going to speak for myself and what I think represents the view of um, most conservatives, and I'm going to try to refer to some data on this, um, but obviously I don't speak for everybody. Um, I think, and like the data shows us, that most people in America, including most Republicans and most conservatives, want our schools, for example, to have an honest rendering of American history. And that includes all of our sins, including the the appalling history of slavery, the appalling history of segregation. Um, but in the remember, if conservatism is about conserving the things that have, have worked, where a number of conservatives have gotten upset about, for example, critical race theory, um, and we can have a discussion about how much this is um, concerns about things that are actually happening or whether it's uh, uh, has been amplified or emphasized in a way that is um, sort of out of touch with what is actually happening. But the concern that there are theories out there that suggest that all of our institutions are broken and they can't be redeemed and all of them um, are so... Uh, busted from uh, unfairness that's woven throughout them that we need to break all of our institutions down and start them over again. And this is a debate that goes back not just about race, but about institutions in general, uh, back to Thomas Paine and Edmund Burke more than 200 years ago about 
um, what is the extent to which we reform institutions or do we break them down and start over again? So my view is that we should always have conversations and always own up to the sins of the past and try to redeem ourselves and make sure that America is fair for everybody, um, while at the same time saying that democracy works and we should protect it. Our constitution is good and we should protect it, that it makes sense to give people power over their lives through school choice or community empowerment and we should protect those things while always being mindful um, that uh, the history, not just in America, but elsewhere can be unfair treatment for the disadvantaged, whether low income or minorities of other types. I'm, we're going to keep Andy Smerick <laughs> with us for uh, the next uh, for the next bit of conversation, but we're going to add another Manhattan Institute voice, Rafael Manguel, who writes a lot about public safety from a conservative point of view. Uh, we're going to talk to him uh, about uh, his work uh, and continue to talk to Andy, and we want to get to you, our listeners, in the conversation as well. 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we'll work you into the conversation. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We're talking again about conservatism and the Republican Party and where all that stands uh, just a month after the midterm elections and the surprising results uh, for conservatives in them. Uh, we've got Andy Smerick with us. He is a Manhattan Institute senior fellow. Uh, his work focuses on education, civil society, and the principles of American conservatism. I want to add another uh, voice to the conversation here uh, as well. Rafael Manguel is head of research for the Policing and Public Safety Initiative at the Manhattan Institute. He recently wrote the book Criminal Injustice, What the Push for Decarceration and Depolicing Gets Wrong and Who It Hurts Most. Uh, this idea of policing and public safety, I think, is one of the real tension points uh, in American politics uh, right now. So I'm really glad uh, to have Raphael with us. Uh, welcome to Detroit Today. Are you there, Raphael? Yep, I'm here. Oh, Thank you, you so much for having me. Okay. Uh, so um, let's uh, let's start with your work about uh, policing, particularly your latest uh, book. You're not a fan of defund the police. Uh, you're not a fan of some of the calls for reform of police. That's something we talk about a lot on this show from the opposite perspective. Uh, tell us why you you uh, think differently about that and, uh, and how that connects in your mind to conservative values? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that the police reform debate is, you know, based on a lot of misconceptions, one of them being that police use of force is a 
common or likely outcome of a police-citizen interaction. And, you know, that's really where I think the conversation has to start, because if you're talking about police reform and policies to address um, use of force and to lower rates of force, you have to get a sense of how much room there actually is for improvement. And if, you know, you're just a casual uh, consumer of the public debate, it's very easy for you to come away from some of these conversations thinking that police force is very common, but in reality it's not. And, and that's something that often surprises people who are not kind of engaged with the data. Um, for example, um, police officers use deadly force in somewhere in the range of 0.03% uh, of all arrests. That's, you know, a very, very small, small slice. So even if we can somehow, and, and that's all of deadly force, right, including justified deadly force, which is the vast majority of those kinds of situations. So even if you disaggregate, you know, the the unjustifiable uses of deadly force, you're still talking about an even smaller slice of these interactions in which these kinds of things happen. When you're talking about non-deadly force, it's still not a very uh, uh, likely occurrence. There was a study once done of three police departments over a two-year period that saw one million calls for service to 911. Those calls for service resulted in 114,000 criminal arrests. Police officers used physical force, any physical force, in one out of every 128, which means that more than 99% of those arrests were affected without the use of force. Um, again, that's not something that I think the typical um, sort of, you know, average consumer of this debate comes away thinking. And so that's sort of the first thing um, that I think has to sort of get, get taken care of and, and clarified. And once you do that, then you can, you know, I, I think take a, um, a more sober approach to evaluating popular reform proposals for their likelihood to reduce use of force significantly and to do that in a way that doesn't harm the public safety, right? I mean, that's the that's kind of the crux of this. You know, at, at, at the end of the day, when we're talking about public policy, we're talking about trade-offs. And, you know, there is no area of public policy in which uh, trade-offs are going to be absent. So for every lever that we pull, um, we have to be careful uh, about the potential that, you know, there's downside risk that will come to pass. And then the case of police reform, the downside risk is mostly going to come in the form of crime increases. Crime increases, which, by the way, are not going to be felt evenly uh, across the United States because crime is very, very concentrated, both geographically and demographically. And so, you know, that's another thing that I think kind of gets lost in our police reform debate, which is often sort of rooted in arguments about, you know, racial equity. Um, and, and that's because, you know, we know that certain minority groups are overrepresented given their share of the population among people against whom police force is used, people, mm-hmm. among people who are arrested by police. Um, but what gets left out of that is that they're also vastly overrepresented among victims of crime. And so if we pull a policy lever that causes crime to go up, that lowers the transaction costs of committing crime, that raises the transaction costs of enforcing the law, what you actually end up with is a situation in which you've made things significantly worse off for precisely the group um, that you want to help. And so in my home city of New York, for example, last year, 97% of all shooting victims were either black or Hispanic, almost all of them male. Now, black and Hispanic males don't constitute anywhere close to 97% of the population. And so, you know, if the police reform uh, debate or a particular police reform proposal was going to be rooted in an idea of you know racial equity and and you know, based on uh, a disparity in police uses of force, it also has to account for the disparities that would would come to pass if in fact the downside risk came to pass, and that you know again is a crime increase. And so, yeah. 
you know, it's not so much that I'm against police reform. I think, you know, there, there's certainly a lot of things that we can and should do um, to make policing better and more equitable um, and safer. Um, but I think lots of the most popular police reform proposals, things like defunding the police, demilitarizing the police, abolishing qualified immunity, just don't have a very high likelihood of reducing police uses of force significantly. And the one thing that does, which is defunding the police, while it would significantly reduce police uses of force, it would also significantly increase crime. So, so uh, you know, it's, uh, I hear a lot of what you're saying, and, and I think you're making some, some reasonable points about uh, the way that we talk about this. Um, but, but, I, but I absolutely, I, I guess, disagree with the, the assertion that the numbers suggest that this isn't as big of a problem uh, as it is. And I guess uh, the the argument I would put out there is that, um, you know, the relationship between police and those they do police is a continuum. And so when we see police officers, for instance, um, uh, killing citizens uh, without justification, which we do see, um, you know, which we do see, um, it's not that that happens in isolation, right? It's not that that is uh, the sum total of the way in which that relationship has broken down. And so if you go along the line to, you know, the routine traffic stop, uh, from the routine traffic stop to the violent uh, altercation between officers and citizens, uh, what we see along uh, along the path the entire way is uh, a disrespect for liberty, a disrespect for humanity, uh, a disrespect for equality, and that these things are institutionalized in police departments. And I think as much as anything, uh, the idea of defund the police, which of course is not just about uh, redirecting money that goes to police, but is also about uh, reforming um, reforming the way that they interact with, with uh, citizens, you know, that is, that is what's at the crux of this, is, is that institutionally, the reason we see uh, the deaths that we do see at the hands of the police is because of this, uh, this continuum of, of behavior and interaction that leads to that. Um, how, how do you answer that? Yeah, I mean, I'm just not sure... I agree that there's really a lot of evidence for that. I mean, there are lots of studies. I think if you talk to any, if you talk, if you talk to any African American in this country about how how they're treated uh, by police uh, in, in multiple different kinds of circumstances, I think uh, how, how can you how can you not how can you not acknowledge that that uh, that this happens? I mean, I I could tell you well, well, dozens of stories as as a fifty year old African American male of of inappropriate interactions I've had with police, and I've never ever committed a crime. Yeah, I mean, look, I can certainly acknowledge that it's happened. I've also had uh, terrible experiences with the police uh, a couple of times in my life, um, and I'm not a white man for those of you who don't know, um, but. But the, the idea that that is what's causing the uses of force that drive our police reform debate, I think, is, is where I would take issue. You know, there, there are lots of studies done of police uses of force, and the biggest predictor of whether or not police are going to use force is actually suspect behavior. 
Um, again, that's not to say that there aren't things that the police can do to be better at procedural justice, to be more respectful in their interactions. Um, I, I certainly think that there's room but for But you don't think that there. there's an institutional problem with the way that policing sees uh, communities of color, sees men of color, and interacts with them that leads to this violent interaction? You think that it's suspect behavior or, or citizen behavior that when it, drives When that? it comes to actual uses of force, yes, I do think that the biggest predictors of whether or not police are going to get physical is going to be suspect behavior, and I think the data bears that out. Um, and, and no, I mean, I don't think that there's really an institutional level problem. I mean, it, again, in a country of 330 million people with almost 700,000 cops making 10 million arrests a year and having, you know, 75 million public contacts a year, it's very easy to pick out a large number of problematic interactions. But what, you could, what conclusions you can draw from those problematic interactions, I think, are more limited than what lots of police critics let on. The idea that we have an institutional problem, I don't think, is, is what's supported. Again, that doesn't mean that we should discount or um, write off these individual problematic incidents, but I do think that they're statistically isolated and rare. And one of the reasons for that is that you don't see you know, sort of large disparities in terms of these outcomes between departments that are majority minority and departments that are not majority minority. I mean, mm. the LAPD, the NYPD, Miami PD, Atlanta PD, Washington DC, uh, Metro Police. I mean, these are all majority minority departments in which you, know, you, you see a lot of the same complaints. And so it would be strange um, you know, to, to kind of make the argument that, that black I, well, police I think officers, that's, Latino police officers sort of unwittingly participating in the oppression of their own people. Oh, I think that's absolutely uh, not just possible, but I think we see that in many different aspects of American life that, again, because inequality is so institutionalized, uh, that, that individuals who are parts of those institutions end up acting on that institutional bias without... Uh, themselves being uh, uh, biased, that, that, that there is something about uh, the way these these institutions are configured that um, that promotes that bias. And, and again, I mean, I, I, obviously we disagree. I, I really do appreciate, um, uh, you know, you being here and, and making the argument for our, for our listeners. I just think uh, yeah. it's, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just saying, I mean, I, I appreciate the opportunity. And one thing that I would add to that, too, is that you know, we shouldn't ignore the other side of the ledger, right? I mean, arrests, uses of force, um, these are not the only outputs of the criminal justice system. These are not the only outputs of policing as an institution, right? If you ask any police leader in the country at almost any time in modern history what it is that they are trying to pursue, what their goals are, how they define their own success, they're going to point to crime declines. That's what they're going to say that they want. When, they, when crime goes down, they claim victory. And, you know, that's an important output of the criminal justice system, and it's something that I think gets left out of the conversation. And one of the things that I think we have to understand about that is that because crime is so demographically concentrated, when crime does go down, it disproportionately benefits low-income minority communities to a significant degree, and there was a, a really good study by a, a guy named Patrick Sharkey who looked at the, the homicide decline between 1990 and 2014, and he found that that decline added a full year of life expectancy to the average black man in the United States, while it only added 0.1 years 
of life expectancy to the average white man. And so that begs a really important question, which is, why on earth would an institution allegedly designed and operated for the specific oppression of a certain community so disproportionately benefit that community when the institution achieves its stated ends, as stated by the people at the institution's helm? Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, again, I think that the, we could go on for days about the the, the the levels of disagreement we would have about why those stats are true and, and the relationship between policing and those stats and also the relationship between other factors in those stats. But but I, I do want to uh, keep the conversation moving here. Um, uh, and I want to bring Andy Smerick back into the uh, conversation. Uh, before we broke, uh, I was asking you about the relationship between conservatives uh, and and race and equality, um, and, but also gender and e- equality, and um, you didn't really address that uh, in in your answer. So I want to give you a chance to talk about um, the things that we see and hear from conservatives that devalue um, the, the the gender freedom and gender uh, equality that that so many people are now. Uh, not just pushing for, but but demanding, and how that squares with uh, your assertion that that conservatism and the Republican Party are about liberty uh, and and equality. In in that context, I think it's really hard to see that. Well, um, I want to make sure that I'm being as responsive as possible here. Um, you were completely right that liberty is a fundamental value of. You know, in our constitution, and conservatives need to protect this. And the debates that are happening right now, whether about Title IX, which go back a long time, or questions of marriage or anything, has to be viewed within this context of like, what does equal protection mean? What does uh, the 19th Amendment on voting rights mean? And I, and I think all conservatives have to stand up for this proposition that everybody needs to be treated fairly by our courts. Now, what states end up deciding or localities end up deciding about what is taught in schools, at what age kids are taught different things, are these issues that are going to be debated, but always put me on the side of uh, standing up for the Equal Protection Clause and due process and so forth. And can I go back to like something that you had raised this issue sure. um, about like institutions, which I think is like a fundamental like a thing about conservatism that we should at least name here. And Mm. when you were raising the question of can we really, we need to understand how unfairness is baked into, whether it's police departments, but I don't want to read too much into what you were saying, but maybe you were also thinking maybe our courts are institutionally unfair or legislatures are unfair or churches are unfair. And this is something like I referred to, goes back 200 plus years, um, this question about do we try to slowly go about the reform of institutions and try to prudently change them or all are they so broken, so unfair that we have to raise them to the ground and start up again? And it's not just in America, but like in uh, other nations going back um, ages. This is like a perpetual question. How do we think about reform and getting to fairness and the common good? Does that mean uh, taking for granted that there's some good things our institutions do and trying to make them better or saying, um, and again, not to put words in your mouth, but if you think police departments are so broken, do they just need to be brought to an end and then start something anew? This is a, a perpetual question within conservatism, progressivism, liberalism. Mm-hmm. 
And and to, to the, I, I absolutely agree, and I think that's that's one of the things that uh, on the left, I think uh, people are really talking about is whether these institutions can be saved or whether they need to be uh, fundamentally uh, redrawn. But I but I do want to go back to uh, this question, uh, Andy, of of the way in which conservatism and Republicans relate to this specific issue of of uh, sexual identity and gender identity. I mean, uh, here in Michigan, this cycle, uh, there, there, there was a flood of ads from conservative candidates, Republican candidates, absolutely attacking the idea of uh, of sexual identity and um, and and freedom and equality. Um, and and again, how, how do you square that? with the idea that conservatism is about uh, individual freedom and equality. I mean, the, the, the two things can't, they can't intellectually coexist, I think. Well, uh, I don't know like the specific ads that you're talking about, but in other states, what we've seen are these debates mostly about schools and they were um, the same whether- here, yeah. Yeah, so um, questions about like what are the rights of parents related to some of these issues about use of bathrooms or athletics or what kids are taught or um, are we protecting students' rights and privacy or do we let parents know about these kinds of things? And this is an issue that um, you'll have libertarians uh, who are on the American conservative, uh, on the political right, maybe take some different positions of more social conservatives who are much more concerned about um, uh, the rights of parents on this. And these questions relate to like liberty, but also the responsibility of parents to have knowledge on this. So we've had seen some in some states like Florida, there have been a bunch of uh, school board races or even state legislative action that give parents more rights or limit what can be taught at different levels where more libertarians might actually have a view that um, we need to uh, actually have a bias in favor of students' rights even if they are much, much younger. Um, so this debate is ongoing and I think, I mean, this has popped up when I was cutting my teeth on education policy 20 years ago. This wasn't nearly as much of an issue, but it seemed like over the past two election cycles, it's been bigger, but a lot of this relates to um, families' power vis-a-vis teachers, administrators, school boards. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Uh, we need to take another quick break, and when we come back, we're going to get to calls and social media comments for our guests. Continue talking about conservatism and the Republican Party and its future. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. Listening to Detroit Today on 101 WDET, and our guests are Andy Smerick and Raphael Mangual, both of the Manhattan Institute. We're talking with them about conservatism, about the GOP, uh, the tensions within conservatism and the GOP right now, and where uh, all of that is headed. Uh, we want to hear from you as well. 313 577 1019 is the number, and you can go to Twitter and hashtag us as well, and we'll include you in the conversation. Let's start today with Mike in Gross Point. Mike, go ahead. Good morning, Stephen. Hey. So I've been a criminal defense lawyer for 25 years, more than 25 years, and my experience is that there is definitely 
American oh. and yeah, go ahead, any Mike. other people of color. Oh, can you hear me? Yeah, I, I'm, you cut out there for just a second, but go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. So I've been a criminal defense lawyer in the Metro Detroit area. Definitely an institutional problem in the way uh, the police treat people of color, particularly in. Um, so, Mike, we're, we're, your your connection is is pretty bad, and we're not we're not hearing every word that you're saying. But but I I think I get the gist of what you're saying, which is that your experience in the criminal justice system suggests that there is an institutional uh, an institutional problem. Um, and I I do appreciate uh, the the call, Rafael Mangual. Uh, I I think if you asked anyone uh, who who practices in some place like Detroit. Uh, on either side of um, uh, you know of of the the criminal justice system in the courts, uh, I think you'd hear something similar. I, I guess I'm I'm still a little shocked to hear you say that you don't think there's an institutional problem, uh, but that there is this is individual. Yeah, I mean, you know, I guess it, it it depends on what you mean by by institutional problem and what the evidence is to support that assertion, right? I mean, one of the things that you know I often hear pointed to is as evidence of the institutional problem is, for example, these like top line disparities in enforcement. So you'll often hear it said that black men in the United States are five times more likely uh, to be incarcerated than white men, and that's true. But you know that that that's a top line disparity. It doesn't control for the relevant factors that, when taken into account, actually make the disparity essentially disappear. So you know the National Academy of Sciences, for example, in 2014 did this whole big book on the growth of incarceration in the United States, and one of the things that they looked at was an analysis of studies that that looked at disparities in incarceration practices, and what they found was that when statistical controls are used to take account of offense characteristics, and this is a direct quote. Uh, of offense characteristics, prior criminal records, and personal characteristics, black defendants are on average sentenced somewhat, but not substantially more severely than whites. Um, and, and that matters. I mean, I think that a lot of how uh, the way that we conduct this debate um, is really just not particularly helpful. What we do is we sort of lean into these top line disparities. We don't ask any questions about why the disparities might exist in the first place, and we end up ignoring really important contextual points that you know, frankly, uh, undercut the the harshest critiques of the system. Again, that doesn't mean that the system is perfect, that there's no room for improvement, but the idea that the problem is exists at an institutional level, that it characterizes the institution, is both, I think, wrong, but also, I think, likely to lead us down a path of policy, as it already has, that will exacerbate the existing problems that these systems were erected to solve in the first place. And that's right, but, but essentially what you're saying is that our entire society is unequal and that's what's causing the problem. And I, I, in that way, I guess I don't disagree. I mean, that is the institutional nature of this. Right. So if we have these, these levels of inequality in things like rates of criminal offending, then you have to accept as legitimate that there are going to be disparities in terms of enforcement. I mean, the only way that you can sort of have racial parity in in enforcement statistics is to ignore um, those disparities in offending and victimization. And that's really important, too, because, again, if you are... It's also about the criminalization of some things and the decriminalization of others uh, and the emphasis, right? Uh, Yeah, that's that's certainly an argument that that I've heard, and I do think that we have an over-criminalization problem, right? I mean, that's actually how I started working in this space, was talking about the fact that at the federal level we have somewhere in the range of 400,000 
criminally enforceable rules and regulations, which no one could possibly be on notice of. But when you're talking about the statistics that everyone's really leaning into, that everyone's paying attention to, I mean, the same, like, 12 offenses account for somewhere in the range of 88% of the prison population for every single year for which we have data, right? So, yes, we have an overcriminalization problem, but I think that's separate and apart from things like incarceration and policing. What policing are doing on the beat, what what people are ending up in yeah. prison. I, I mean, again, I, I think we just kind of fundamentally disagree there, but, but I really do appreciate the back and forth. Uh, unfortunately, we are out of time. I would really love to get to more of our, our callers and our social media comments, but uh, we have exhausted uh, the, the length of time for the show. So uh, Rafael Manguel and Andy Smarek really do appreciate both of you being here. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. It's going to do it for us today. Come back Monday when we'll talk with political science professor Lee Drutman about the prospect of ranked choice voting and what government structures could make our country less polarized and more effective in passing legislation. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation.